should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Happy Tuesday. I know it feels so, so good to be in this studio right now to be talking to you and for you to be listening to me and also for John Zipper of Commonwealth Club to be here with us. Thank you so much, John. Thank you, Michelle. Welcome, everybody, to the show. Thank you, by the way, for last week and filling in for me as I was having a, a meltdown, pretty much. You weren't having a melting down. You were having a ton of stuff on your plate suddenly, <laughs> and you dealt with it like you always do, awesomely. Like a butch dyke. I can say dyke, by the way, because I identify as one. Okay. I'll just call you a really awesome person. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> I'll take that too. I can say that because I am one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? I uh, I did. I have totally missed uh, being here in the studio and providing some awesome, awesome shows. I mean, you know, radio has my heart. Um, I'm keeping up with the television shows. So if you want to check in on that, you can head to michellemeow.com. We're posting it all. And then, of course, uh, if I can't do all of the radio programs, I'm at least doing a fresh radio show with John because he means so much and he's so good. Um, so you can head to commonwealthclub.org slash meow. Uh, John also hosts his own program that airs here on the Michelle Meow Show, and that is his week-to-week uh, roundtable political talk, and that's 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on the Progressive Voices Network on Fridays. So before we get started with the show, though, John, I feel like I should check in with you on what's going on in the political world. So has Bernie Sanders conceded his campaign yet? No. <laughs> Not that I was... You know, I'm not being I'm not being a jerk. He uh, has a very active, you know, the for those of you outside of California, this is the California primary now, and all the focus is on us, which is exactly how Californians always think should things should be, right? You know, it's all about us. Um, except <laughs> usually in presidential primaries, it doesn't matter. And this type year, you know, we thought, oh my gosh, the Republican primary is still going to matter. It no longer does. The Democratic primary doesn't really matter because. The chances of, of Hillary losing this by the numbers are are like Hogwarts, Star Trek, science fiction. It's not going to happen. He's staying in it. He said he's going to stay in it. She's actually playing cool and saying it's his decision to make. He want mm-hmm. you know stay. He should do whatever he wants, and that that I think is probably the right thing to do. And he's definitely what was I reading yesterday? He had like three big rallies in Southern California and. Uh, um, and he's made some surprise stops here in Northern California. That's right. He um, was in San Francisco last week, I yeah. believe, doing uh, marching uh, with some labor activists. And, yeah. Uh, Someone texted me like, you've got to come down now. <laughs> That's how crazy San Francisco radical progressives are about Bernie Sanders. And yeah. I am, too. I am, too. It's just that, again, I was dealing with crisis. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you for that. So make sure you tune in on Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time for John Zipper of Commonwealth Club to get all of your political tacos. 
(laughs) (laughs) We try to serve tacos here on Taco Tuesday. Let's get uh, our program started today. Uh, Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Almost screwed that one up. They will not be by your side. (laughs) No, they'll be by your side. Our guest today is a special filmmaker, and I say special. He's worked on a ton of stuff, um, in which we'll get into as we uh, as we introduce him here. But his next project is After Louie, which is a film that I would really, really like to see. It touches on uh, what I think we haven't really talked about when we're talking about HIV/AIDS, the movement, and how it applies to the community today. I know there's a lot of talk about you know young uh, people and and kind of how they interact or how they talk about HIV AIDS, which is obviously not the same as as how we talked about it back in the 80s and 90s. But this film would do just that, is intersect uh, just kind of the past with the present and uh, potentially the future. So let's welcome Vincent Galeosto to the program. Vincent, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so let's talk about After Louis, which, you know, we hope to be a, a, a full film, and I know that you're working on it, but it, uh, uh, Alan Cumming uh, plays a, a uh, it plays Sam, that, you know, and, it, and it's this, uh, he's like a, a, an HIV AIDS activist, and I'm stumbling here and trying to find the right words, um, and, and it kind of explores his relationship and his uh, thoughts. Tell us, tell us more about After Louis. Well, you know, Alan Cumming's character, Sam, he is a, um, you know, basically a man. Um, he's an artist and an AIDS activist from, you know, beginning uh, back in the day of the beginning of ACT UP in the 80s and the 90s. And as many of those guys, myself included, you know, he's, you know, he, you know, he's witnessed, you know, the deaths of way too many friends and lovers, and is somewhat battle wounded and struggling with survivor's guilt. And today, he finds himself kind of desperate to really understand how he and his community got to where they are today, as, as well as finding himself kind of stuck in the middle of a divide between his generation and the younger generation of gay men, both coming up, coming up on either side of the AIDS epidemic. So the story, you know, follows Sam as he works through that, and, um, you know, and um, encounters an unexpected intimacy, you know, with a much younger uh, man, boy, mm-hmm. <laughs> and who ends up really challenging Sam's understanding, you know, of contemporary gay life today, mm-hmm. you know. And um, I'd like to say it's a bit of a Trojan horse because one might think that this is going to be a love story between these two guys, and um, it is, but not in the typical sense of the word. You know, it's, um, they both are kind, kind of, uh, they both really accidentally encounter what they're looking for through each other, and what they're looking for is really a sense of community. Uh, for Sam, um, coming from a feeling of a lost community, to the young character of Brayden, who's played by Zachary Booth, um, coming new to a community and looking for a place in the community. Okay. And um, everything that kind of ensues with their relationship. And what was very important for me was to, you know, I began asking myself questions of, you know, okay, 
what does it mean to be an older gay man today? You know, what does it mean to be a younger gay man today? You know, I knew what I thought. I know, I know what I think of that. And, but I never asked, I wonder, what do you think of me? Mm. So what happened was I decided after a number of, a few years in draft, uh, to write the final story with somebody half my age. And that young man is Anthony Johnston. And um, I got to ask those questions while we were writing. You know, what do you think of me? You know, and um, out of that, something, what started to emerge was what was always in the back of my mind, that this film really not only was about, you know, the community that I stepped into at the age of 15 when I took a bus to New York City and stepped into, off a curb into the first gay pride march and went, holy blank, I'm here. You know, this is my tribe. You know, right. I fell in love and not in very deep. You know, and all the love and sex and loss and grief and anger that defined those years that followed, you know, led me to having to... Led me to where Sam is. I mean, the film is quite autobiographical in many ways. But um, what's happened is that the film has, as I said, not only about a community and reflecting the community, it's been constructed and come together through the community. We have kind of the royalty of royalty um, set of actors, mm -hmm. you know, and one of the most important things to me was that, you know, the actors that are cast have a shared biography in one way or another. And, you know, and that's really what's happened, you know, from Alan to Zachary Booth to David Drake, um, Edward Quinton, uh, you know, Joey Arias, Wilson Cruz. These are people who really have share so much of what it is to have a community, lose a community, find a community that um, makes for a very exciting um, approach to this film. And, you know, for me, you know, to really be able to not only respond to, to the community, but have that community join me in kind of architecting right. the story. I, I, I wanted to get into a, a bit of those actors. I mean, let's start with Alan Cumming. I mean, he's not only a big name, as they say, but he's a very busy one. So he must yeah. have been very interested in this story or, or the message in order to, you know, be willing to clear space on a schedule. So tell us about him. How did you introduce, how did you influence him or did, did you know him before this uh, project came well, out? Well, Anthony, my co-writer, knew him. And, he, uh, you know, and Anthony was encouraged, I believe, by a mutual friend of theirs to send Alan the script. So we finally sent Alan the script. And about 10 days later, Alan called Anthony and told him he wanted to do the film. And I was, you know, I, I split my time between New York and Paris. Mm -hmm. you know, but if I went to Paris to write, a, to write this story... You know, I needed distance to write it. And um, I was, it was the day before I was coming back to New York, and I was on the street, and Anthony called me, and I said, what's up? He goes, Alan Cummings doing our film. And mm. Cut it out. What? Wow. <laughs> I got to New York, and of course I was thrilled, and I met with Alan and became more thrilled. Alan, you know, 
in his own right, is an activist and a multi-talented and multi-disciplined artist who has uh, a heart as big as any community could um, expect. And he has, you know, told me and, and Anthony in so many ways how much he's committed to the film. And, um, and I thought, man, you, you know, man, I'm the luckiest filmmaker alive because we're, we, we're doing it on a very, very low budget. Right. And I've managed to attract extraordinary talent. You know, um, Abram Finkelstein, who is a friend of mine going back to the late 70s, who, who was the designer of the Science Equals Death and had the Science Equals Death project and spent, has spent many years as production designer, is my production designer. Um, an extraordinary cinematographer, Aaron Kowalczyk, mm-hmm. who just, I saw his a, uh, trailer for a film that he made, you know, he was a cinematographer on called Art Bar. Right. I was sitting with a mutual friend of, who's become a mutual friend of ours, and I said, my God, that trailer looks like my mood reel. I got to meet him. <laughs> <laughs> um, Vincent, I want to jump into uh, the yeah. conversation and the topic of, of of Larry Kramer, really. Larry Kramer oh. says, this movie needs to be made. And for a lot of people who might be tuning in and don't know of Larry Kramer, well, he's, uh, you know, uh, gosh, a huge, huge name when we talk about HIV AIDS activists, uh, in especially, uh, you know, in association with ACT UP. And for Larry to feel this way, there's got to be the the sentiment or this under under uh, this understanding that perhaps the youth community absolutely needs to understand what has happened um, historically in the gay community as it applies to HIV/AIDS. You know, Larry Kramer to me is a man of uh, accountability. I mean, he is the face of holding politicians accountable for their ignorance of HIV AIDS. And so my question to you is if you thought that within this film and why maybe Larry thinks it's so important the, that we make this film is that there, that there, there's this frustration that we've not uh, held certain people accountable for their actions. Yes. Well, um, for, for, for starters, Larry trusts me immensely, <laughs> um, you know, as a political being, uh, you know, as well as an artist. And um, when I had a draft, I and you know, I said, okay, it's hard to send it to Larry. So I sent it to Larry, and he sent me an email back right away, you know, you know probably the next morning, with huge letters that he typed things like that. First, let me ramble, and I went, oh, dear, I'm in trouble. Well, I love it. You know, and uh, one of my goals with him, you know, since I have been this political being since I was the age of 13, was that um, why I chose to do, do a narrative as opposed to a documentary, mm-hmm. because as an artist, I've always felt, you know, the more personal one gets, the more intimate one gets, the more universal the um, the reaches. And as an artist, it's my narrative. You know, <laughs> it may not be everybody's picture of exactly what Act Up was or what you know, but it's my picture. And it's, and I decided to focus on this very specific group of friends. You know, um, mm-hmm. the character of Sam and. Jeffrey, Sam's best friend, and uh, Maggie, and also a, a man, a 
the name of William Wilson, who left a short story behind. It was a very close friend of all of theirs, called after Louis. It's a very, very short little, little story. And one of the things that Sam is doing as an artist is he's a very successful painter, and, you know, and he's trying to get back to something that meant something to him that he possibly could impart on the younger generation today. You know, so with Larry, you know, so the film is very, very political, and it doesn't pull any punches. It talks about, what it, what it gives voice to a conversation that hasn't been happening, not only between two generations, but within the older generation community, things that we don't want to talk about for whatever reason. You know, we've had enough talk about loss. We, you know, we're battle-wounded. We're this, that, or the other thing. And so but always being kind of connected to that community and Larry and, you know, constantly working with him on a number of projects. You know, he, he, was, he responded to the issues that I started kind of putting out there. My, my, one might call them airing dirty laundry. One might, I'd like to call it just telling the truth. And that's always very important to Larry. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if I had somebody ask me, what would you say to an audience like um, Lockwood Sundance when you're introducing the film? And I would say, I'm just in Vivian Bond is in the film. And oh, I am telling you that because I would say what her character of Tiki said one night in a performance: "Don't get comfortable." Mm. Wow, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna end there because I I that's such yeah. a profound thing to to say. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to continue our discussion about After Louis. So don't go anywhere, okay? Yeah. Stay with us. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. 
Welcome back. Happy Tuesday. I'm Michelle Miel, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. And our guest on the phone is a filmmaker who's got a new project that he's working on called After Louie. So let's welcome back Vincent Galliostro. Vincent, thanks so much for being with us. Good thing. Uh, John, you have, a, you have a great point to make or well, a actually, question. I, I wanted to build on, on something you were just talking about, which was, uh, I think a lot of people are, are kind of hearing, you know, okay, the conversation between ge- the generations of, of, of gay men. Um, but you mentioned something about the, there are certain things within, say, the, the cohort of, of older gay men that there's a conversation that needs to take place or, or differing approaches to things. Could you talk a bit more about that? I mean, what, what because y- even though a lot of them went through much of the same experiences, um, they must have, there must be a lot of different uh, attitudes and, and uh, viewpoints that they came out of it with. What, am, I, am I right? Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, I mean, I can't, you know, I can't speak for everyone, you know, uh, but I can, you know, say, you know, it's, um, they're, they're very subtle. You know, I think when, you know, when about 10 years ago, when I chose to leave New York, um, for some, for, the, for some, for example, reasons, oh gosh, you know, like, with my partner, oh, we've never lived anywhere else, and opportunity arose, and I was kind of, and I was in the point where I had done an installation project based on some of the text mm-hmm. of um, William Wilson's story, that um, wonderful art um, dealer, um, Margaret Thatcher of Margaret Thatcher Project, you know, showed at the, um, I think, yeah, it was actually, uh, 2008, you know, Pulse Fair as uh, part of the Armory Show. And I've been working with Zachary Heath on it. And, and, you know, and, I, and uh, so what started to happen was I started to feel, oh gosh, you know, could I walk away from something? You know, uh, my you, friend, you know. You mean by, by leaving New York? Yeah. yeah. You know, and I started to kind of. Well, as I started writing it, think, you know, truth started. I started discovering truths about myself, mm-hmm. and you know, discovered that well. Oh, there were things that I just didn't want to. It's not that I didn't want to talk about them anymore. I didn't know what to say about anything anymore. You know, mm-hmm. and um, I kept. You know, I always kept in touch with a few of my friends, like Abram, and um, we would talk about stuff, and. I started to realize that a lot of my friends I gave them were turning to making very personal work about mm-hmm. uh, and voicing things that they just kept inside. You know, Abram started writing an autobiography um, and looking at new ways to ways to reactivate activism. You know, how do you get people? You know, I did a short documentary called After Silence on him, and one of the big questions was. You know, how do you get people to care about AIDS in the 21st century? And so that, you know, I realized that I was having that same question, and I wondered, what, you know, gosh, you know, nobody's really talking about it, so how do we even answer the question of how do we get people to care? And my answer became, this is tell the truth, you know, tell the truth on yourself. What have you been doing all these years? You know, and then I started to, you know, I, I always did short little documentaries on people, and I was doing a documentary for this AIDS organization, the ACREA, the AIDS Community Research Initiative of America, that I've been on the board of for some 20-some-odd years. And I was doing, we were doing a 
documentary, and I was interviewing one of my fellow act uppers, and who was one of the founders of the organization, Spencer Cox, who had been one of those people who began, who he talked about abandonment and how he felt abandoned by his own community. And and, and, and can I got a lot. And can I interrupt? It's a feeling of abandonment by others in his generation or an abandonment because they don't see that same level of, uh, of activism among younger uh, gays? You know, by his own generation. Okay. You know, by you know, uh, people probably like myself that moved to Paris, you know. <laughs> um, you know, and then I started, you know, I was very close friends with Peter Staley and a wonderful activist, Matt Ebert, and... Um, I was in touch and I realized, gosh, there were these gaps where I didn't know them and wasn't speaking to them and discovered that they had been dealing with a lot of uh, demons that had arisen and discovered through my work on the streets that I did that it, a lot of it had to do with feeling abandoned and not knowing what to do and not, not you know, how do we, do we reactivate the past, you know, into something else. And so the film, you know, becomes, you know, the character of William Wilson is a thread through the film because he's through Sam's archival footage that he took of William at his request of uh, the last year of the soon would be the last year of his life, and it ended up being that. And so a lot of the politics of that, of, you know, he asked, you know, who's going to throw my body over the White House then? Mm-hmm. You know, which is considered group of my friends and I became kind of famous for trying to do with a friend's honor of friend's success. So this whole, you know, sense of a new kind of loss, a loss of, a, a, you know, a community, a support system, friends who are still, who are alive, you know, it wasn't a loss through of the person died and that person died. It was sure. a different kind of loss, mm-hmm. almost a more aching loss. Michelle Miel, we're speaking with Vincent Galeostro, who's a filmmaker, and he's working on a project called After Louis. We're talking about uh, the the premise of the film, which is about an act of AIDS activist, or former AIDS activist, who's also an artist, and explores his relationship with um, with other men. And, and in this movie, it's a younger man, and, and it's really focused on this bigger conversation that we're having, which is um, our, you know, the uh, the impact of HIV AIDS in the past, and then kind of how our relationship, what is our relationship is in, in the present. Uh, Vincent, I want to bring up um, a discussion about sex. Um, you know, the gay liberation movement is intertwined with also the sexual liberation movement in my mind and how I understand from reading history. Um, and so constantly talking about, uh, our movement here and our people, um, hope, you know, we hope that, that, that people understand that we shouldn't be criminalized for our sexual behavior. And so I think that the film would probably touch upon that and that is, our, you know, diverse relationships with one another as it, as we talk about sex. Do you think that our sexual behavior has changed? I'm, I'm sure that it has. And when I say our, I'm, I'm obviously especially talking about the LGBTQI community. Um, I know that Larry Kramer has been critical of the use of PrEP. And so I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were as we introduce PrEP into the LGBTQI community and the HIV AIDS community, how that may have or what your thoughts are and how that could impact our sexual behavior. Sure. I mean, I have a few uh, similar worries to Larry. One is always first and 
form of political. I feel, as Larry does, that there's uh, a fear that with with craft, it's a question. It's a fear and a question. You know, will that encourage even more apathy than I think exists today? You know, will the younger generation be able to understand that they have an enormous amount of political clout and will they feel motivated once they hopefully get that they do to still keep an eye on things that are, you know, the government and and politics and social issues around the subject of sex and and HIV research and education. So if you you know it's a, it's a good question. I don't have you know I don't have the answer you know to it for myself. It's just a worry, and I, it's something that Larry has, has you know has expressed. And in terms of changing our behavior, well, you know again you know I guess I fall in the real in the Larry Kramer camp with this kind of thing. You know I don't want to be a you know um, a well, a prophet or anything. But one does, one only has to look at statistics. And I think one of the behaviors that is, that PrEP changes is the willingness to not use condoms. And I think that why that's so dangerous is, first of all, that doesn't prevent STDs. And there's been a rise in reports of STDs and, and gay men going to clinics and dealing with that. Mm-hmm. And you just, you know, when you've been around as long, you know, from the, you know, the onset of the sexual revolution, which began, you know, let's just say Stonewall for the most part. And really, when you look at that, it, sexual revolution didn't last very long. You know, come around 1980 and especially 81 when the Times wrote that article, it kind of got truncated. Yeah. And um, so I think, and we saw, you know, I mean, friends of mine, I was probably, I don't know, I was one of them, you know. Um, I wasn't particularly that promiscuous. I was going you know, in places like the mine shaft and stuff like that. You know, I would go and go, really? oh, wait, I can't do this in the dark. You know, <laughs> I'm a visible person, you know, kind of thing. But what people were doing, you know, people were taking penicillin and things like that as a prophylactic. You know, uh-huh. and and you know, recur, you know, research of uh, people like Dr. Joe Sonovan, you know, who subscribed to the fact that the possibility of things like that weakening one's immune system and making one susceptible to um, viruses and, and possibly the HIV virus. You know, today, what I love about Larry, he always says to me, "Yes, we've got we this has happened and that's happened and we've accomplished something." But I love that Larry always comes from zero. You know, if you can understand that, yes, you can acknowledge all the advances, but if you always want more, it gives you this ability to not condemn things, mm-hmm. but to ask the, the right questions or possibly pose those questions, mm-hmm. you know, to yourself, to, in my case, my own generation, to a younger generation who one young man, when I innocently asked what figured in his decision to take crap. And it was a very unjudgmental question because, you know, who would you want to do? He said, well, now I can have 
the fun that you guys had. Mm. And I found that very disturbing. Well, I am so sorry. We have run out of time, and I want to make sure that I mention that there is a Kickstarter out to make this uh, project possible. Um, uh, so, yeah, so just look up After Louie, or you can head to afterlouie.com. We've got about eight days to go to reach uh, the goal here, and as you can tell here, we're deeply passionate about making sure this project does get funded. We need, 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 need this movie as larry kramer said this movie needs to be made vincent thank you so much for coming by and talking to us about after louis oh you're welcome and thank you thank you so much for being so interested <laughs> remember you can head to afterlouis.com for more information and look up kickstarter after louis don't go away when we come back we'll talk about san francisco and some big major changes that may have impacted um our discussion about racial injustice so don't go away the michelle meow show continues right after this The spotlight on success and achievement goes to LGBTQI members of the Bay Area who have demonstrated an incredible amount of success. We're very proud to announce that this month's spotlight on success and achievement is Rick Welts. Well, it's been an unbelievable stretch of time, obviously. Uh, everything the Warriors have gone through this season, really a magical season that ended in a championship. Uh, and now to, to top it off a week later with the opportunity to participate in the Pride Parade in San Francisco, it's a, it's a pretty wonderful time. You know, it's been a journey, right? We're all on our own personal journeys and uh, the last four years has been a remarkable part of my life, but it, it's definitely a part of my life. Uh, you know, the decisions I made four years ago to come out in the way that I did, obviously, you know, I had decided I was signing up for something going forward and being part of the discussion. Uh, and, you know, I welcome that. And this is, uh, you know, for me a real honor to, to be participating in this way. And I guess in, in some ways it, it will be a demonstration of how far professional sports has come in, in a very short period of time. Uh, not as far as our society has come. So I think we have a lot to celebrate. Wow, I, I don't think I have any secrets. I don't think I'm that mysterious. You know, I've got a, a pretty simple life. I like pretty simple things. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a great partner, his name's Todd Gage. Uh, he has two wonderful children, a 14-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy. I, I uh, got off the parade route, got into a car with them. We drove to Lake Tahoe and I got to watch 14-year-old girls play four soccer games over the course of the weekend and then drive back to the Bay Area. So that's my idea of an exciting weekend, you know, spending it with the kids and my partner and getting to do, you know, the most basic things that any family would get to do. Spotlight on Success and Achievement, presented by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Happy Tuesday. Happy Taco Tuesday, even though we rarely have any tacos here. I think we've had tacos once, right, John? Yep. <laughs> it's true. You got to start bringing them for me. It'll be nice. Um, or I can bring them for you. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us co-hosting. He uh, does his own program that airs here on the Michelle Miao Show 
Fridays at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time, so make sure you tune in. We're going to switch gears here and uh, move from talking about HIV AIDS and uh, the LGBTQ community to exploring something much bigger that um, that also impacts, yes, or I should say that's inclusive of the LGBTQI community. I mean, I, I think that it's important to not only talk about gay issues because what are gay issues? I think gay issues can also expand to include um, cultural issues as well. So our next guest uh, has been here on the program, and I always enjoy his time. It's Adam Hudson, and he's written for Truth Out, or he still does, and uh, he also has been very outspoken about the change in San Francisco and how it's impacted um, not just you know LGBTQI people, by the way, but but mainly uh, people of color, specifically uh, African Americans. So Adam, welcome to the program. Um, before we jump into, you know, just the, the, the big meat of what's happening here in San Francisco, if people don't know, if they haven't been following the news, let's talk a little bit about a project that uh, you sent me information on. Tell us about it. Yeah, so um, uh, so Truth Out and Haymarket, um, they're publishing a print off of It's called Who Do You Serve, Who Do You Protect? And one of my articles... Um, will be featured in that anthology. So it's a collection of um, essays by writers, journalists, and activists involved uh, uh, in challenging police brutality. And basically the, the theme of the book is uh, basically to get beyond the, um, the sort of, uh, you know, get, get rid of the bad apples in the police department to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, combat police violence. So, um, yeah, so a lot of the essays, like, take a look at, like, the role that police have served historically in the United States and uh, ways to resist uh, the system of police brutality mm-hmm. uh, as a whole. So, um, and there's actually a foreword by Alicia Garza of Black Lives Matter. So um, people can pre-order the book um, through Truth Out, um, but it will also be in stores uh, sometime in June. Tell us about uh, the article you the article you have in there, the chapter you wrote. Yeah, so the article I wrote is about, um, so there's this uh, place in Chicago called Home and Square, and it's basically um, the way the Guardian newspaper described it. They described it as like a domestic black site, uh, which is basically like this sort of off-the-books um, facility where Chicago police have been known to uh, send people there, mm-hmm. uh, predominantly people of color, usually black people who... Uh, are suspected of um, whatever crime, like drug or gang-related crimes. And they take them there for off-the-books interrogation. A lot of it included, included torture. And the reason for the terminology of black site is because uh, it's very remission of uh, what the CIA did during the war on terror. Um, when we, you know, rendition people and put them in uh, places like uh, Poland and Thailand and uh, Afghanistan to, um, you know, torture people, many of whom were were guilty of uh, being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought that was uh, a very interesting... Um, I wanted to take a look at, at that site and show that how torture uh, has been used throughout American history. And, um, like, three years ago, I actually traveled to Guantanamo Bay. So I've, I've seen, like, what, you know, sort of uh, a little more closely, like, what the American empire does overseas, and, uh, you know, that's another issue I cover, sure. Guantanamo, so sure. um, seeing, seeing the connections between what the U.S. has done in Guantanamo and CIA black sites and 
what we do domestically in our prisons and through the police. I think there's a lot of parallels to be made. So that was pretty much the just the gist of the piece. I'm um, I'm not going to remember the exact percentage, but it was it was disturbingly high. Um, some number I just read about uh, the percentage of Americans who even uh, who today, I mean, this number has risen, believe that torture is justified. I mean, when you hear something like that, and I apologize, I, I literally don't have the number near me, but when you hear that, I mean, does that make you despair? I mean, all the, all the yeah. work that, all, I mean, you, you know, former prisoners of war talking about how this does not work, it's, it's, it's counterproductive, the, just the inhumanity of it. Um, so how, what can you do? I mean, you're, you're, by looking at this, this Chicago black site, um, where are we now with that? I mean, is it, is it, yeah. oops, we I, did I it and we'll just open up another one somewhere else. You know, yeah, there's a lot to kind of unpack there. So I think, um, you know, one thing that I think has, has, uh, and by the way, you're right. Yeah. There's a large percentage of Americans who still believe that, uh, that torture is justified. I don't know. I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but yeah. I do remember that, uh, at the very least, the majority of Republicans uh, believe that. Yeah. Um, and what's been interesting to see with, with people like Donald Trump and, you know, before they dropped out of the race, people like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, um, and also Senator Mitch McConnell, he said something that I think really kind of encapsulates where Republicans stand on torture. Um, he was saying that uh, we should keep Guantanamo open to put in new uh, suspected terrorists, particularly from groups like ISIS, mm-hmm. which is, I think... You know, pretty disturbing, but kind of interesting because that's probably the first time I've heard that kind of argument. Because normally it's been like we should keep the remaining prisoners in Guantanamo, but now it's kind of shifted to where we should put new people in there. So it, it seems like the the debate has been shifted even further to right. And I think people like Mitch McConnell and uh, Ted Cruz and Donald Trump represent like how extremely further to the right um, the debate right. has been. It's been shifted, particularly within the Republicans, but, you know, not much as, uh, I don't think they're really that far from a lot of Democrats either, especially on that issue. Well, and if I may, you're, yeah, I think you're right, because um, just look at another issue where we wanted to talk about, which was police brutality um, and, and mm-hmm. such, you know, Chicago, a heavily, heavily Democratic city, you know, mm-hmm. San Francisco has had a number of uh, high profile police shootings and, and a lot of controversy heavily, heavily, heavily democratic, very progressive city. Um, are there cities you can point to, big cities in this country, that you would would say they actually are doing it right? Because there are so many examples of, of really it being done wrong. Yeah. No, you're right. That's a lot of, yeah, and it, it, those are good examples. And, I mean, New York City is also a good example. Yeah. It's done wrong and it's heavily democratic. Uh this city isn't a big city, but it's definitely in the region. I think Richmond, California has, from my knowledge, served as, like, what, I mean, a decent alternative to policing could look like locally because um, um, his name kind of escapes me. I believe his first name is Richard. But the, the police chief in Richmond, uh, he's been emphasizing de-escalation tactics. And um, I believe since 2007, around there, uh, I don't want to... You know, I'm not certain if that's, that's the exact year, but at least for the past decade, um, during his tenure, there have been very, very, very few police shootings, like almost zero. I think there's like one back in 2014 or somewhere around there. But 
out, I mean, out of all the cities I've seen, like Richmond, California, mm-hmm. uh, has very has a very very low number of fatal police uh, you know police shootings, and uh, yeah, they've been uh, Richmond as their police chief has really been emphasizing de-escalation tactics, um, relating with the community, and uh, one thing that I think is interesting that they've also emphasized is uh, also second guess second guessing uses of force by police. So if police kill someone, they always, like, they don't automatically say, oh, it was justified, it was self-defense, like you see with so many, including um, by former police chief Craig Sir. Uh, you know, they go back in and, and review, like, okay, like, what could we have done better? And I think, um, I think that's led to a better, uh, you know, relationship between the police uh, and the community. Sure. Um, you know, when, you, when course, you say... Like, I'm sorry. When you say they're they're going back and looking, what would we have done better? What actually happened? That's the police doing that, or there is there an independent commission, or who does that? Uh, I, I think it's it's the police. Like from mm-hmm. from what I know of, of the police department, like um, that, uh, um, yeah, like that's been kind of like one sort of one one approach that I've seen that seems pretty different yeah. from a lot of police departments. That instead of like like, a normal approach is like, okay, please kill someone while well, the police were right. Um, that tends to be the sort of standard operating procedure in a lot of police departments. They're like, oh, the police shot someone. Okay, well, the police must have been right. He must have been, you know, trying to defend his life. Um, and I think, like, the police chief in, in, uh, in Richmond, uh, he, he's been taking a different approach. And uh, from what I've read, like, um, yeah, like, second-guessing their use of force, like emphasizing de-escalation, sure. uh, relating with the community. And I think that shows that, like, you know, police don't have to keep killing people in order to, you know, keep communities safe. Like, there are other ways to keep communities safe. Yeah, there's another there's other ways to keep communities safe without constantly killing people. Exactly. And also, Richmond's crime rate has gone down, too. Like, yes. So that's another thing. Well, let's continue this conversation. We're going to take a quick break right here. But when we come back, we'll, we'll talk a whole lot more about race as well as um, law enforcement, I should say police. Uh, so don't go away. Adam Hudson will be back with us. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Like us on Facebook and share us with your friends. Find out more at facebook.com slash progressive voices. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegra.com. 
G-R-E-C-A-R-E.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. And on the phone is Adam Hudson, who's a contributor to Truth Out. And he's got a new project that he's working on that should be due out soon. And I think everyone in the country needs a copy. If you can read, you need a copy of this book. It's Who Do You Serve? Who Do You Protect? And and, and it's an anthology, by the way. It's a Truth Out collection, various uh, contributors. And it touches on police violence and resistance in the United States. Adam, I thank you so much and thank you and Truth Out and everyone who contributed to this because I feel like mainstream media has stolen the truth, (laughs) to be honest, obviously, right? (laughs) They do that like every single day. But when we talk about, you know, organizations or I should say movements like Black Lives Matter and or those right now who are speaking out and up against police brutality, police harassment and the relationship that police have with its communities, you know, the 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 general or I should say those who tune into mainstream media will criticize um, and, and think that, you know, if you side with the protesters, then you are defiant, you're defiant, you're against the law, you're a criminal. <laughs> and they don't understand yeah. that what we're trying to do here is we're actually we're actually talking about keep, keeping people safe, people, keeping keeping people safe who might be of color. Um, I want to talk about that. Something's happened in San Francisco that's very interesting, but it's the resignation of Chief Sir. A lot of people think that his resignation is um, considered the success of, you know, uh, movements and protests in which uh, lots of people here in the Bay Area have been vocal about our relationship with police. What are your thoughts? Um, well, actually, before I ask that question, I just double checked the name of uh, their Richmond police chief. It's Chris Magnus. So just oh. and uh, oh. yeah, so and police shootings have been declining since 2007. So I just wanted to like kind of make that clear. Um, yeah, so the the resignation of Greg Sir, I think it's a good thing. Um, and you know, it, it, one thing that kind of saddens me is that it took another uh, police shooting to basically sort of kick that into gear. Um, the 29 year old 29 year old woman Jessica Williams, like pretty much on the same day that she got killed, uh, Sir. You know, Ed Lee basically forced Greg Sir to resign. So, you know, it, it was sad. It's sad that you know her death that that happened, and that forced you know that was the one thing that forced Ed Lee to be like, okay, sir, you gotta go. But um, but I do think you're right. It it shows the, you know, that it it was it that moment um occurred in large part because of the 17 day hunger strike, um, which is. I mean, 17 days of going without food. I, I went there to, to talk to the protesters. It, you know, they they sacrificed quite a bit. Right. And and, and just to clarify for those tuning in, and if you're not here in San Francisco, um, there was uh, what we, and you weren't tuning into the news, the Frisco Five were five people who had committed to a hunger strike to to call for the resignation of Chief Sir here in San Francisco. And so Adam's referring to the 17 days that they went uh, without food and water, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I think uh, Greg Sir resigning is a good thing. Um, I think, he, I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's the first, it's an important first step, I'll say, because, you know, even talking to some of the protesters, I, I think, 
the kind of the sense I got from them is like, you know, they wanted Sir to resign, but that that wasn't the end all be all. And uh, that, that's pretty much how I feel. Like, I mean, when I heard that he resigned, you know, I was happy uh, and, you know, also happy that it showed the power of, of protest and, and, uh, and popular uprising. But um, at the same time, I don't think just changing the head of a police department will mean that, you know, everything's going to be solved, like everything's going to be hunky Let, Let's talk about that very quickly. And so, um, you know, and, uh, specifically, we know that there's been protests in asking for the resignation of Greg Sir because of the number of bodies of people of color who that have been lost under, you know, uh, police custody under uh, Greg Sir's, um, I guess, rule. I shouldn't call it that. It's not like he's like some dictator. But anyway, um, he's resigned now and they've uh, appointed or, you know, who's replaced him is an African-American gentleman, uh, Tony Chaplin, who's now right. the interim chief. And so what are your thoughts that does the mayor or does the, the, the city's administration actually think that this is a solution by you know, pointing someone who is African-American, or do we have faith in this new interim chief, Tony Chaplin, that he will seriously consider reform? Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think it's, like, the end of it. No, I don't, I don't think, because, you know, like, there have been instances where even, um, it's not always just white officers who kill people of color. Like, there have been instances where black, Latino, or Asian police officers kill people, including people of color. So... Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Sean Bell, like, what happened in New York, uh, you know, he was shot over 50 times, and a lot of the officers who killed him were black. So, um, and, in, in, and in a lot of instances, you know, black police officers can be just as corrupt as, like, their white coworkers. So, um, right. and I think in that, you know, in that case, it shows that, you know, they're they're loyal to the their department, their institution, which is the police. So, um, I mean, I, I hope it, I hope he, uh, I hope Chaplin, um, changes things. Uh, but, uh, I'd rather wait and see for actual results than just like, okay, let's put a black person in here and then, you know, call the day, you know, cause I think it's going to take a lot more than that than to, to actually change things because I think San Francisco's problems with institutional racism go far beyond uh, who's the head of the police department. So. I, I think the writing on, on the wall for Sir had been there a while. Uh, the Chronicle's Chuck Nevius, a columnist at uh, the San Francisco Chronicle, had uh, in fact been on my week-to-week political roundtable once, and he was talking about how the, the previous uh, uh, police killing that had garnered a lot of attention where you know a bunch of officers had, had shot at this person who had... I don't know, a knife or something like that. And the, there was one of the, I think it was one of the Chronicle people had a video showing this from a different angle or whatever. And they were watching it and, you know, they showed it to Greg, sir. And as he's watching, you know, and just listening to all the, all the gunfire, it, it, sir literally slapped his forehead as in, Oh Christ. Now I have to deal, you know, it, in other words, Chuck Nevius was saying, look, it, he knew that basically this was just becoming, you know, oh God, I've got to go defend that. Um, it, it will be interesting to see if, if Ed Lee, how, how much he's ready to push through as a, 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 in terms of change and, you know, what some of these uh, best practices maybe he could learn from Richmond and other places. 
Um, but uh, it sounds to me kind of this goes back to, you know, the police training as well because, you know, use of force, the likelihood of using force, what you use, um, uh, you know, that that's not something they, they learn once they, you know, get hired in a police department. Or, I mean, you know, day one of, of the actual job. I mean, that, that's got to be going back to the training. And I live near the police academy here in San Francisco, so I walk by it all the time and they train a lot. Mm. <laughs> getting right. ready getting yeah. ready for war sorry I, I kind of went on there but um it it would be interesting to see kind of what will happen or not change here in san francisco and i think like what you're you're indicating earlier people are going to hold their feet to the fire you know they're expecting change to happen yeah yeah i think also like um this is i think somewhat related kind of separate but i do think you know i've been kind of following this election the presidential election and seeing the, the the rise of Bernie Sanders is really interesting um, because he there was a speech he made back in '94 uh, when the '94 crime bill was being passed. Uh, he wound up voting for the bill because largely because there's a measure to uh, combat domestic violence against women. But despite that, like most of the measures in the bill, he criticized and. Uh, again, this is 94 when the whole, a lot of people were saying we need to get tough on crime, yada, 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 war right. drugs. And his approach is basically saying, like, you know, this mass incarceration system is not going to work. It's a bad idea. It's good, but it's going to mainly hurt poor people and people of color. And we should be supporting, we should be investing in jobs and education and social programs in order to keep community safe. And he said that at a time when, you know, it was far less popular to do so. And the reason I bring that up is because I think the fact that he, he has so much support represents that there's a genuine progressive insurgency that's happening within this country. And I think what we saw in San Francisco with the hunger strike, which I think really upped the ante in terms of like tactics of resistance in San Francisco, because that, that was the... I, I hadn't seen people hunger striking over police brutality. That's right. probably the first I've seen it. Right. So right. I think I think there's a real thirst for something that's different to the status quo. And I think Sanders represents that particularly on the economic front, but I think that's a it's a good sort of way to push forward alternatives to issues like policing. And yeah. I think with Black Lives Matter, we're seeing that. So I think it's interesting to see, to see the rise of Sanders kind of go on at the same time as like Black Lives Matter. Absolutely. Um, Adam, I'm so sorry. We've uh, run out of time and uh, we've we've got to no go. Worries. They're booting us out. We've, we've hit the one hour mark. But um, thank you so much for all that you do and you continue to do and being a voice for um, those of us. And I'm going to quote you that are thirsty for some real progressive, you know, uh, for a progressive movement here for equality. And in my mind is what I heard. Um, so make sure you pick up a copy of Who Do You Serve? Who Do You Protect? Look out for it at truthout.org, and that's truth-out.org. It's the Michelle Meow Show, everyone. You can head to michellemeow.com. Don't forget, you can also go to progressivevoices.com slash, uh, I'm sorry, progressivevoices.com. No, that's not it. It's commonwealthclub.org slash meow for all of the podcasts uh, that John Zipper and I do. Have a great Tuesday. We will see you tomorrow.